Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. The episode you're about to hear is an interview with someone who's doing cool and good things in the world of quantum computing. Stay tuned no matter what your level of understanding is, because these are always interesting conversations open to people of all levels of knowledge. Now, you might have been wondering after my last episodes, Ethan, do you have some kind of deal with IBM to do PR for them? No. And to prove it, here's a super cool interview with Anastasia Marchenkova. She's a quantum computing researcher with Bleximo, a startup that is looking to provide specific quantum solutions. She explains it way better than I ever could, so here you go. Enjoy the interview. So, I have with me right now Anastasia Marchenkova, who is a quantum computing programmer at Bleximo. Um, hey, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Glad to be here. Awesome. So before we dive into what you're doing with quantum computing right now, um, go ahead and tell us a bit about your background and also what you did before working on quantum computing. Yeah, so actually I've been in quantum computing now for over a decade. So I've been in the field a wow. really long time and it just happened randomly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nice. So I, I, I actually came into college and declared computer science because I was really into robotics during that time. And then I took physics one. I went to a math and science STEM high school. So I was always in the sciences, okay. but I took physics one and I was like, oh, well, I'm good at this. And it was such a challenge for me. I really was looking for something that mm. really, really made me have to think hard and wasn't about memorizing. So I did end up switching <laughs> biology uh, in in between my path just to, you know, I thought I was interested in that science then realized it was all memorizing textbooks, didn't want to do that. And physics was an yeah. amazing challenge. And then, yeah, and then my... Uh, Summer after my freshman year, I started looking for research positions. I went to Georgia Tech for my undergrad. I had just transferred into the physics major, and I started emailing professors in the department asking for research positions. The first one said no. Uh, I believe it was a biophysics lab. They had too many people. They wanted me to already have taken a couple of the third year classes. The second one mm. said yes. I kind of just emailed and was like, hey, I know how to solder. I know how to kind of put electronics <laughs> together. Do you need spare hands? And it was a quantum telecommunications lab. So Great. there I was working on neutral atom quantum memories. And hmm. with that, we were just trying to extend the coherence time. And coherence time is how long quantum information can be stored in these right. rubidium atoms. So I worked on that for three and a half years. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Wow. And beyond that, I'd, you know, I, I was really excited about quantum. And sometimes, you know, people ask me this a lot. And I'm like, it wasn't a huge decision to go into the field. It was something interesting. I really loved the research. And then I just started going along that path. And I stayed in there for, well, I stayed in that lab until I graduated college. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, they, they, they were awesome. Uh, there were a lot of labs there at Georgia Tech that really allowed people to start early, which I think was amazing. I got yeah. to put together an experiment from scratch. You know, I spent my first semester building a lot of electronics and just working with my hands and learning some concepts. But then I, I also, yeah, I guess about a, a semester in, 
they said, hey, here's an empty room. We're making an entire new experiment. Like you're going to start putting <laughs> it together yourself, which is an amazing experience. Not a lot of undergrads get to have that opportunity. So it helped me a lot yeah. with all my, my later work. And uh, yeah, that's after that, awesome. I actually kind of took a break. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it, it was yeah crazy opportunity. But uh, yeah, after that, I, I took a break. I actually ended up starting a company uh, my last year of college. I always thought I would be a physics professor. I would go straight to my PhD. That was always the plan. And uh, <laughs> I had a very the social network story there where me and my co-founder accidentally crashed the servers at Georgia Tech one <laughs> night. And... They were not super happy about that. You know, Honor Boy oh, yeah. was kind of like, hey, you can't hack into the systems. And we're like, we weren't just <laughs> hacking. We just kind of DBOS'd the servers. Accidentally, Oops. sorry, we learned about caching now. I <laughs> <laughs> won't do it again. But a professor in the computer science department obviously noticed that and kind of called us up and said, hey, you know, I run a startup incubator. You're starting a company. Here's money. Here's seed funding. Go. Wow. Uh, which is kind of a crazy opportunity there as well. I It was kind of a leap of faith for me, but I thought I could always go back to graduate school. I deferred my admissions in graduate school and did that for a year and a half, year and a half until okay. the company was, was acquired by another company. And uh, hmm. at that point, I, I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do now. I guess I'll just go back to my normal plan and go back to grad school. So I started my PhD at University of Maryland in College Park in, okay. uh, yeah, in 2013. So they were doing a lot of stuff that's trapped ions at the time, which coming from mm. neutral atoms was kind of a, 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 a very close leap. And I was thinking yeah. of working with that. There's a company called IonQ that spun out of University of Maryland. Chris Monroe okay. uh, is a professor there. So he he was there at the University of Maryland as well. Great quantum program. Um, but I actually ended up not feeling like grad school was the right place for me. Mm. And I spent about a year and a half in graduate school, took a lot of the master's intro classes, and then decided to leave. I just, after the startup pace of life, I was so used to doing so many just a fast pace you know academia yeah. is very different in some ways it could be a lot slower and I, I I got addicted to that hustle so I ended up <laughs> moving out to California uh, I got a job at a quantum startup in California started doing that for a while and uh, worked that's when I made the leap to superconducting qubits so started working again on different sides still in hardware uh, still on that end and then you know, left that company, took a bit of time to explore other opportunities. That's when I really started getting more into software. So as a physicist, okay. we, I took one, I, yeah, I think I took one computer science class. That was all that was required. And <laughs> even though I was kind of hacking away at, you know, little project scripts, you know, all of us probably did stuff in MATLAB and Mathematica, but yeah. it wasn't real computer science. When I was working on my company, my co-founder was a CS major, so he did a lot of the development, but I would sit, kind of still sit next to him and be like, okay, well, we, we have a new feature to build. Like, what can I build? And would just learn it from, yeah. from him, but definitely not a lot of formal training. And <laughs> then that's really when I got into software engineering, being in the Bay Area. Obviously, there's a lot of software out <laughs> here. And started learning how to code on my own, got jobs in software engineering, got all the concepts down. And uh, 
yeah, now moved over uh, to Bleximo. So we're doing quantum hardware as well. But, you know, in, in all the quantum startups now, you have software development. There's all these like cool uh, cloud-based quantum computing systems mm-hmm. online and you need to know how to code to access those. So it's it's been, a, it's been really kind of a crazy adventure. I think I've touched everything from, you know, multiple types of hardware to middleware, worked with FPGAs, did a lot of lab equipment tools, went all the way to the software end, (laughs) was on the business side, business ops, all of that. And yeah, crazy journey. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, I'd love to hear more about what you worked on at Georgia Tech with the the neutral atoms. And how did you try to extend the decoherence times? Yeah, so a lot of the concepts uh, back then, this was, I was in college 2008 to 2012. So superconducting qubits were around, but they they didn't have a lot of, um, yeah, they they weren't really the the most popular medium at that point. So a, a lot of the concepts are the same. You know, you want to... The thing is, you know, keeping quantum information means you can't observe it and it can't, you know, do anything. So uh, you want to, in, in superconducting qubits, we cool them down, right? Because temperature is right. atoms moving. And if they kind of are moving around, they're more likely to de- cohere. And so we cool mm-hmm. them down as much as we can. The concept there is similar as well. We use lasers and magnetic traps and trap and stop the atoms from moving so there's a ultra high okay. vacuum system we suck out all all the air everything everything in the system except for those rubidium atoms as clean as we can get them so we have wow. you know different types of pumps and uh other systems clearing it all out lasers on six sides to trap the cloud of atoms and then magnetic traps to you know, continue stopping the movement. So the trick there is as much as you can get out of it uh, in in terms of, you know, other particles, it's it's the mm-hmm. worst thing ever. So because I was on the <laughs> experimental side and I had an empty room, I set up these systems from scratch. You can't touch them, wow. right? So there's this, yeah. this horror story they tell you. They're like, you leave one fingerprint inside of the machine. It's not perfectly clean. It, the experiment's going to be ruined. You have to take it apart. You have to bake the system, so it might be a month or two before you can get it working again. So you want to do it right the first time, wow. clean it all out. And uh, yeah, actually, as we were building it, we had a flood in the building. I remember this. This was, Oh, no. Yeah, this was over some break. It was like Thanksgiving or winter break, and all my parts were there. They finally all arrived. I'd bought everything that I need for this experiment. We are going to start putting it together. wasn't touching anything mm. yet. And the basement flooded so everything was covered with dirty water and so painstakingly every piece (laughs) that we had to put together and these are room size you know this is room sized equipment oh yeah so this is like huge pieces of metal that i'm just dunking in in you know ethanol like 10 times (laughs) over again hoping to get everything out all the crevices like going in there with little toothbrushes and then you know trying to clean everything out on the optical tables and it was just a nightmare so that set us back a couple months to just do that as well yeah um it appears that i lost you no here 
Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll cut this out. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, um, yeah, okay. So next thing I want to ask is what's it like to work in a startup environment, especially in quantum computing? Because I know, like, I've talked to a lot of people who work at IBM, and I'm sure that it's at least a bit different. So, yeah, sort of walk me through what your day-to-day life looks like um, from the perspective of quantum computing startup. Yeah, so I do have a lot of experience on both sides. I've been in academia, I've been now in multiple startups in the quantum computing space. So definitely the pace of quantum computing startups is faster. Uh, Something that I remind people that come to interview with us at Bleximo is it looks like an academic lab. We're actually up at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So it's still near campus at Berkeley, still very academic. Um, but but the pace is faster, right? The deliverables are different, and I think it's a very different approach to working. So um, the that's that's one thing. Another big thing is I noticed in graduate school and academia, the advisors aren't always there. They're doing so many other things. They're teaching mm-hmm. here. Everyone is there 100% of the time. Everyone's in the lab together, and you're also collaborating with a broader range of people. So. Okay. In academic groups, you're working with a lot of physicists, which is great, Mm -hmm. but uh, to build a startup, you need a ton of other people, right? So we're solving different problems. In academia, if you're in the physics department, you're solving physics problems. You're looking at the fundamental laws. However, in a startup, we're trying to build quantum computers. So besides the physicists, you need software engineers, you need electrical engineers, you need mechanical engineers, you need everyone else to keep the company just running. And there's just a lot of extra things to deal with. But I think that's kind of the exciting part of it. You know, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. you get to talk to people outside of your field, you get to see, you get to collaborate with them, you get to talk to people that will eventually use your systems. I think that's, yeah, that's such an exciting aspect of the work. But besides that, it feels Kind of the same. I mean, you're you're focusing less on writing papers uh, <laughs> as you <laughs> way less than you would do in in school and in academia. You're really pushing towards that deliverable. So a lot of the day to day things do look more like my software engineering job, where you have a daily stand up. Uh, something that a lot of companies like yep. to do, and I really enjoy doing, is you do a stand up every morning. Everyone says what they worked on yesterday, what they're working on today, and any blockers. And then you can kind of quickly collaborate and say, oh, well, I know something about what you're blocked on. Let me help you. And you can really right. just up the pace of productivity. And so you're all working together, whereas in, in graduate school, undergraduate, you would usually have your own project. There'd be less broad collaboration uh, across an entire organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... That's yeah, super cool. I like the the fast pace. Um, I, I definitely appreciate that, and something I would like to do. Um, so at Bleximo, you are working on building a superconducting quantum computers, correct? Yes. Okay. So what is different about those systems as compared to something like what IBM or Google is building? Because I know they're also doing superconducting quantum computers. 
Yeah. So what a lot of these other companies are doing, they're building universal quantum systems, which means you can program any algorithm you want to on their systems. And for us, what we're building is application-specific quantum processors. Uh, okay. So we, we call them quantum ASICs. That's kind of our, our deal <laughs> there, where they're, they're built for specific algorithms. So there's just things that we can do there and adapt the chips. Uh, if we know a certain algorithm you know, would, would work like this, we can build the connections where we need to uh, versus universal gate quantum computers have to be connected, very, very highly connected to be able to run anything, right? And so yeah. it's, it's just a little bit of a different approach. I think on the startup okay. end, you also need to think about how do you get to a place where it's most useful very quickly. Right. And for us, that's our approach where we think, you know, something working working will be kind of on the application specific level. Universal is great and universal is where everyone wants to go. But again, fast paced, yep. uh, you, you got to yep. move and, and take advantages like that. Very cool. So with that, um, does that mean that you're doing one algorithm specifically when you're making these quantum ASICs or is can they do a couple different? How does that look like? Yeah, I'll have to see how much I can <laughs> actually share about this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I, I mean, in general, we're looking at multiple algorithms, but you can okay. you can you there's a sliding scale, right? You don't have to have, um, you know, fully, fully connected or just one algorithm. You can go in between. Um, okay. the, the, the question about it, right, is you want to minimize the amount of um I guess, how do I say this? You want to minimize the amount of kind of difficulty or complexity of how you program the algorithms, right? So okay. I don't know um, how much you or the users here or your, your listeners here have um, done programming, but on quantum computers, but a lot of the IBM systems, when you look at the higher level algorithms, they kind of map the circuit for you, right? You don't have to tell it. Like I want to run yeah. variational quantum eigensolver. I put it on this qubit and this cu this gate on this qubit, this gate on this qubit. It optimizes it already. Um, yeah. But you have to take into account what connections exist, right? And so yeah. there'll be some there'll be some in between. And you really just want to minimize the amount of gates you have to do. Uh, so there's something called swap gates, and that's kind of moving the qubits, kind of the qubit states closer to each other. So if you're doing things on yeah. you know opposite ends of this chip, you know, and then you have to do something together next, you have to do a lot of swaps and you don't want to do that. So there's a whole field of circuit optimizations that hmm. people are doing uh, for that. And uh, yeah, so the idea here, it's the, the optimized chip already is already doing some of the optimization for you up front. Okay, interesting. But again, there, there's so, a possibility that, you know, if you if you have that topology already, it might work for other things, but maybe not as well as a universal yeah. chip, or maybe just maybe still better than universal chip, but maybe not as good as, you know, it, it, it'll just depend. Yeah, okay. So the, the trade-off that's being made there, right, looking at the no free lunch theorem, you've, you're trading off universality for lower error rates or higher qubits, or what's the trade-off? Yeah, the trade-off is you build less connections, so hopefully they're better. Uh, you know, okay. higher fidelities uh, there. And, and yeah, less error correction. Okay. 
Very and so, good. so the idea, you, you know, the idea is, I think the calculations are, you know, we're talking about logical qubits. You need so many physical qubits to make one logical qubit. If you need so much right. error correction, if you have a full universal system. So once that scales up, um, if, if we can ever make, you know, millions of qubits, it'll probably be fine, but we're not at that point in quantum computing yet. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, why superconducting? Um, why that architecture specifically? Why are we doing it? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a few different hardware systems out there. So like I mentioned already, trapped ions are a contender, superconducting qubits. Uh, people are doing a lot with that. Uh, there's other startups doing other types of hardware. And in, in, in some ways, superconducting qubits are one of the best um, hardware, okay, I guess. So superconducting qubits and trapped ions are the leading contenders just because they have uh, high marks, I guess, in what you call the DiVincenzo <laughs> criteria. And there's certain okay. things that a quantum computer needs to do to be a good quantum computer, right? So just the amount of qubits doesn't. I mean, it matters in the end, but if the, you have bad qubits, like your quantum right. computer is not going to work. Um, so what they can do is, you know, you, you can measure things really well. You can prepare the states really well in both superconducting qubits and trapped ions. And mm -hmm. uh, for us, it was just the team had a lot of experience in superconducting qubits already in cryogenics. And so that made it kind of an okay. obvious choice. We saw... Um, we saw the technology proceeding in a good way to scalability. And so this made it kind of a clear choice for us to go with that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, those criteria you mentioned, uh, what are those? Ooh, let me see if I can get them off the top of my head. <laughs> um, so I mean, it's, yeah, it doesn't have ahead. to be like exact, but just sort of generally. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the DiVincenzo criteria is, well, first you have to have actual distinct qubits, right? So okay. they can't, you have to be able to kind of differentiate uh, the qubits themselves if they're, if they're all in kind of an area and you, and you can't control them one by one. Yeah. That's not going to be a good thing, right? Uh, so they're going to yep. interfere with each other. Uh, like I said, they have to hold, like be coherent and actually hold the state well and hopefully for as long as possible so there's some trade-offs there as well but you know that's the the more we can get with that the better okay. uh you have to initialize them properly right so if you want to put them in superposition uh you have to be able to do that pretty effectively if you can't even get it into the right state at the beginning you can't your your algorithm is going to be completely ruined right um, then you have to be able to do the Op operations on them as well and then have the measurement and actually be able to read out the results because again if you can't read them out <laughs> also there's no point <laughs> in running the algorithm so those are kind yeah. of the different criteria the, the methods for each will vary depending on the hardware um, but right but yeah there's a, there's a lot of different um yeah yeah okay uh, yeah so that's awesome um Super good information. A bit of a change of topic here. Um, a while back, you and your team uh, were the winners at the 2019 Kiskit Camp Asia. Um, congratulations. A little bit late. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about your project there and what that whole experience was like. Oh, it was great. So that was actually my second Kiss Kid Camp. I also went to the Switzerland one where I won uh, Kiss Kid Camp Europe and I won second place there. So, you know, okay. came back for a second round, got first place. I was joking <laughs> with the IBM people at the end. I'm like, I'm retired, right? I'm not allowed anymore <laughs> at these events. So oh, it was just, it's just such an amazing experience. And why I went again, it was just, it was so nice to meet people in the community in the quantum mm -hmm. community, there were so many people I knew from Twitter that I got to meet in person oh, yeah. and hang out with. And so just and, and just getting to go to Japan and Switzerland was an amazing experience. But seeing what, what they do really well and what I really liked is that they bring in people with a lot of different backgrounds. And so there okay. aren't just people who are in the quantum space. There are also people who are in computer science and people outside of those fields who can come in and collaborate and that's what i really love like i mentioned about the startups the, the thing i really like is having all these different um types of people around who have different backgrounds and different um come in with a different experience set and so what i really looked for was getting to do that right i didn't want to be on a team with just physicists i wanted to get that new insight and so yeah I worked on designing a pulse programming language and I remember reading it. So what happens at the beginning is that we do, we have a GitHub, we put up our ideas there, the coaches put up ideas, people start kind of discussing them and pitching, okay. pitching their own, and then you join teams. And so you, you sign up for the idea you want. And I saw this one and I thought, this is really broad, but this is <laughs> really interesting, right? And so... The thing about the hackathons is I always like to think about what can you realistically get done that time, which for this one is yeah. probably not super realistic, but you can always break it down to certain deliverables. So mm -hmm. I, I, I saw it and said, this is actually a really cool feature. This is something I'd like to have in Kiskit. I want to build it, or at least if I don't finish building it, I want to be able to put together a plan or, you know, some... So, something yeah. uh, to help this project along and yeah i joined the team we had two physicists two computer scientists on it so it was a nicely balanced group for people who actually knew how to code <laughs> and do all that <laughs> people who understood the hardware understood the pulse level nice. sequences yeah. that are needed to create gates and we were able to come together and do this we actually got pretty far. So breaking it down at the beginning, we just started out with, okay, let's understand the problem and let's break it down to several deliverables. We'll work on each one. You know, if we don't get all the way to the end, at least we'll have something cool to show. And we got <laughs> most of the way through it actually. And wow. it was just such a cool experience to be able to do that and, and hang out with smart people people that were really excited about <laughs> learning and ibm did yeah. a great job also with all the fun activities we had this um escape room sequence to kind of ice break <laughs> the icebreaker at the beginning and uh, we had to hunt around do puzzles and problems everyone loved it and great food and they they've done an awesome oh, job yeah. of just spreading quantum computing in the community i think yeah, that's super cool. All right. So as we sort of wrap up here, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge in quantum computing right now? Ooh. I mean, besides all the, you know, 
things that we actually have to do to build the quantum computer. I do think <laughs> that we need to work on our messaging in some ways. Okay. And this is me coming from our startup, from my startup background and knowing, uh, I, I guess with my startup background, I, I know the struggle of talking to customers and really understanding their needs. And I think the quantum community yeah. and a lot of academic communities suffer from using a lot of jargon, using a lot of terms being like, whoa, well, this is really complicated. Like you won't be able to understand this. Um, I kind of yeah. joke about that. Was it that Feynman quote? That's like, if you say you understood quantum mechanics, you don't actually know it, you know? And yeah, and to me, that feels like such kind of a bad attitude <laughs> in some ways <laughs> because it's discouraging. It's not empowering. Right. And to be able to, you know, we want to solve problems for other industries. Quantum computers aren't going to be just for physicists. We want to help out with all these industries. So we have to be able to be, be able to teach enough quantum that other people can understand what problems they can solve with quantum, right? So I see this okay. a, lot of, a, a lot in the quantum community. They go, well, that's not a problem they, that can be solved with quantum or that is a problem that can be solved with quantum. Well, how do you know? You know, we have that background yeah. and we kind of understand the problem sets that quantum computing help, can help out with but um you know people who didn't study physics don't and you shouldn't need a phd to work in quantum computing or be able to use a quantum computer so i'd really love to see that expanding so I, I i worked at an online education company for a while i worked at coursera and so i'm big on online okay. pedagogy and teaching <laughs> well and so i think yeah. that's that's a challenge that the quantum computing community needs to come together on and I'm, I'm glad to see it happening and just got to keep doing it and that's why I've you know been blogging you know my big niche is that exact niche saying you shouldn't be a have to be a physicist to understand what I'm writing and yeah. uh, you know I want more people to come and try this out and tell us where we're going wrong or things that we don't understand that insight is so valuable and we need to just keep definitely yeah Awesome. Um, so what do you see as the biggest promise moving forward? Ooh, the biggest promise? Yeah. What do you mean by that? I guess the what what's the most interesting or, I guess, world-changing thing that you see coming out of quantum computing in the next however many years you want to take that to? Yeah. I, so... Hmm. It's, it's difficult, I think, right? Because I don't think we fully grasped, I don't think we fully grasped the power of quantum computing at this time. Mm. And so I just, I feel like it's going to be one of those things where it was, a, I think it was Bell, no, not Bell Labs. I think it's actually Watson from IBM said, why would anyone need a computer, you know, in their <laughs> house? Like one computer for a town is enough. And I, I feel like maybe quantum computing could be one of those things, right? There's yeah. so many, there's people like Peter Shore who can create algorithms without having a quantum computer, but he's mm -hmm. a very smart person and a very special case. Yeah. And I feel like once we have systems that you can program on, do things with, we'll get a lot more insights out of it and figure out more that it, that it can do. And so I just, I can't even grasp what we could possibly do with it can can we scale it to a large level i mean i'm not super excited about everyone always asks me about shor's algorithm and is it going to destroy bitcoin i mean yeah destroying yeah. <laughs> things isn't super interesting to me you know like yeah just destroying things isn't valuable it's it's kind of a fun 
thing to talk about, but I love the idea of being able to contribute to medicine and materials. Mm -hmm. Materials are a big blocker for a lot of industries right now. And it just feels like quantum computing, if we can get it to that stage, will be so fundamental in helping so many other industries grow. And who knows beyond that? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely valid. I think I would agree that we probably don't know the full extent of what quantum computing will do in the future. Yeah. Um, and that's so why I'm so where... excited. Oh, sorry. Go, no, go for it. Yeah. And that's why I'm so excited to bring more people with different experiences because I don't know the problems that people have in other industries, right? Because I'm, yeah. I'm in my quantum computing world, but they have <laughs> problems. You know, they'll try things. And maybe we'll help out and collaborate and they'll be able to, you know, figure out that this works really well for a problem that they that we didn't even think could be solved on a quantum computer. So very exciting times ahead, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, you mentioned blogging. Where can people find out more about you and what you're working on? Yeah, so my website is amarchinkova.com. And I kind of have all my links on there. I just throw on all my YouTube links, my Instagram. Uh, I've started a TikTok recently doing like quantum computing oh, no. jokes. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But it's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, so so for me, just trying to get quantum computing out there, I try to respond to as many questions as I can on my Twitter as well. Basically, A Marchinkova on whatever social network is probably me. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. Anna. Thank you so much. This is awesome. I had no questions or corrections related to stuff in the previous episode. I did finish the IBM Quantum Challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was with a lot of help from the Kiskit community on the last problem, specifically from Amir Ibrahimi. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And I know I'm not going to pronounce this right. Abhigyan Mishra. Um, thanks a lot, everyone. And thanks, IBM, for creating this cool challenge and experience. Um, I got the chance to answer some questions for people about the challenge, a lot of Python questions, some quantum computing questions. I hope what it gave was helpful. Um, please reach out to me on Twitter at oneethanhansen, shoot me an email, oneethanhansen at protonmail.com, or you can reach out with a anchor voice message, that'd be super cool. Um, if you want to get in contact, say what I'm doing wrong, say tell me that I pronounced your name wrong, I'll correct it for the next episode. Um, tell me something that I'm doing right. I love getting positive feedback from people. It really it makes my day. Um, so yeah, if you just want to chat about quantum computing, let me know. I'm your guy. Um, any sort of contact, Twitter, Proton Mail, or Anchor. Either of those work. All right, as always, we have links in the show notes to everything Anastasia talked about. We got her website, we got her Twitter, we got Bleximo's website. I think that might be it. Um, basically, resources in the show notes. Don't really have anything else to add for this episode, uh, other than saying that Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with TheQuantumDaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.